You're listening to Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belial, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love Maine Radio Facebook page or www.lovemainradio.com for details. Now here are a few highlights from this week's program. When I'm writing, I can always see everything that I'm writing about. Every scene that I depict in words, I'm also seeing in my head. And yet the interesting thing is, and I think the wonderful thing is, that every reader brings their own memories and experience and imagination to a book. So what they see is not what I see. So if I write a book and a million people read it, it's a million different books because each one brings their own individual perceptions to it. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 171 airing for the first time on Sunday, December 21st, 2014. Today's theme is The Giver. What better gift is there than a book? Today, we speak with best-selling author and Newbery Medal winner Lois Lowry, who has bestowed the gift of literature upon adults and children the world over. Lowry has written 45 books, including one that inspired the recent movie The Giver. Join us and learn more about the life and mind of this fascinating Maine resident. Thank you for joining us. On Love, Maine Radio, we've had um, many distinguished guests across the microphone from me, and none who I think have generated so much excitement here at the Maine Magazine offices as the individual who is with me today. This is Lois Lowry, who is an American children's book author who spends part of her time in Maine, and she's best known, I think, most recently for her book, The Giver, which won a Newbery Award and also has been made into a movie. So thank you so much for coming in and talking to thank me. Thank you. Probably says something about the age of the people here, uh, that they're excited about me. They're not that far from being my constituency. Uh, you know, I've been around for a while, and they were kids not that long ago, I'm guessing. Well, I think that that's true. I think the fact that um, The Giver has been a part of school curricula for quite a long time, it was published in 93, so it's been out there for a while, that that may be so, that people who are in their 20s now and even their 30s recognize this. Mm -hmm. But you've been writing since 1977. My first book was published in 77. I was writing before then, but I was also, I was 40 in 1977. Uh, I had also gone back to college because I dropped out of college to marry at 19 and when had four kids. When my youngest started kindergarten, I went back to college. University of Southern Maine, I lived here in the at the time. So I was uh, college first, graduate school, writing on the side, and then finally uh, turned my attention to doing what I'd wanted to do, being a writer. You have had a very 
broadly traveled life, let's say. You were born in Hawaii. Your father was in the military. He was a dentist, I believe. Yep, Army dentist. Army yeah. dentist. But he, he was a career military officer. He wasn't a dentist who just happened to uh, fall under World War II. He had made that his career. So as a result of that, you traveled to traveled to and lived in a variety of different places. Yeah. I, I was born, as you pointed out, in Hawaii. We left there uh, when I was three, before Pearl Harbor was bombed. Uh, then, of course, when the war began, my father had to go overseas. My mother took my sister and me, and she was expecting my baby brother, uh, back to Pennsylvania, where she had grown up, and we lived with our grandparents during that period of time. But then when the war ended, my father had to stay in Japan. He uh, became part of the occupation. He was, people find this amusing, but he, he was MacArthur's dentist. And uh, that makes me chuckle for some reason, too. Uh, and he was responsible for setting up dental services for uh, the military and, and eventually dependents coming into Japan. So we went and lived in Tokyo. That's where I went through junior high school. I was there 11, 12, 13 years old. Then when the Korean War began, we had to leave. My father had to stay. Casualties were coming in from Korea. We went back to Pennsylvania. And then when uh, he was transferred, it was to New York. And uh, so I spent my high school years in Manhattan. A uh, very big change from small Pennsylvania town, but uh, for me, a wonderful one. And I've been traveling ever since. Uh, circumstances have taken me hither and yon, as they say. You describe yourself as um, being married when you were 19, but first you went to Brown. You, that, that your path was not, I'm going to get married, your path... No, no, uh, except that this was the 50s, and I think sadly, in retrospect, for many females in the 50s, that was probably our subconscious path uh, to find a husband and to marry. Uh, and, and so, though many of us went to college, it was not at all uncommon to drop out uh, and, and to marry, which is what I did just after my 19th birthday. And looking back at this now, with your own children, it probably seems young. Uh, well, yeah. People don't do that anymore, I don't think. Um, my own kids, uh, I had four kids. I, I'm, I'm trying to think who got married and who didn't because they didn't all marry, but uh, but they, they waited uh, on, until later. Uh, I do have one daughter who had a child when she was 22. Uh, I had four children by the time I was 25. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, times are different now, and people tend not to make such monumental choices at such an early age. As I was reading your autobiography, which is interesting because it was written, I think, in 95, 96, somewhere around Gosh, I, d I don't remember what year it was published, and I don't really think of it as an autobiography, more as a kind of memoir, reliant largely on photographs. So it's not a, an account of, I was born then and did this and did that. Uh, it's, it's just a kind of collage of memories. Well. Somebody described it as an autobiography. I agree with you that it, it yeah. is more that. And what I thought was very interesting is the way that you um, you brought in a photo of yourself and then your mother at that age. Um, and you you contrasted and compared sort of where people were at various, sta various stages in their, uh, at their lives. Yeah, I, I haven't re-looked at that uh, in quite a long time, but I seem to recall that I did that twice in that book. There's a picture of me at 12 or 13, 
uh, juxtaposed with a picture of my mother at the same age. And then I think there's another picture of me at, say, 18, and, and mom <coughs> at that age, too. And, and in the same way, my experience at those ages is different from today's 12-year-olds and today's 18-year-olds. They were also different from what my mother's life had been. My mother actually uh, didn't marry until she was, oh, probably 28. And uh, she said, she told me that she felt like a spinster by then. All of her friends had married and had children, and she thought nobody was ever going to marry her. And then, of course, she met my dad, and it was a long and happy marriage. But it's interesting to see how the different generations do things uh, differently. As a result of all of the moving around that you did, it was important to you when you were raising your four children to give them a sense of home, a sense of um, stability. Uh, which is not to say that I didn't have that same sense. I think that relies more on family than place. Uh, I loved moving, uh, as I did often as a kid, but at the same time, my kids, we moved to Maine in 1963 when my youngest child was an infant, and the others would have been one, four, and five, or something like that, all of them quite young, quite close together. And then all of them grew up in Maine. Only one of them still lives in Maine, my son Ben, who's a lawyer here in Portland, and the others are all scattered about, and I've lost one, as you know. Uh, but it was important, it seemed important to me to, to have that sense of place that I had not had as a child, much as I loved uh, the travel. Well, you talk about your child that you lost, and this was your son, Gray, mm -hmm. who died as a result of a, it sounds like a training accident with as a pilot with the military. Uh, yeah, my, my son, Gray, graduated from Falmouth High School and uh, went to the University of Maine in Orono. Uh, eventually, he got a, a master's degree in aeronautical engineering. But in the meantime, when he graduated from college, not quite knowing uh, what he wanted to do next academically, he, he uh, applied to enter the Air Force uh, to, for pilot training. It was hard to get in at that time. I don't know if this is still true, but here's a, a I, 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 I start to say it's a funny story, but it's a, an interesting story more than amusing. Gray was scheduled to, uh, he had passed all the tests, the academic tests, to get into the pilot training program in the Air Force, but he had scheduled a physical. That was the final test he had to go through. And he was a perfect physical specimen. He was an athlete, didn't smoke in those days as a college guy, fraternity guy at Orono. He probably drank a bit, but at any rate, he was a good, healthy guy. And so the physical was scheduled. It was not going to be a problem, but he uh, was skiing, and he fell and broke his shoulder skiing. And he had to take this physical, so he you don't put a cast on a broken shoulder, of course, but he, he was wearing a... I don't know what you would call it, uh, strapped around uh, his, his body. And he took that off and went into the physical, not telling them that he had a broken shoulder. <clears throat> and he had to do, he told me later, a number of physical tests. Uh, I, I can only imagine what they were, but he said it was excruciating with this, with this broken shoulder. After he did all of those and passed all of those, he excused himself, went into the bathroom. He said he just lay on the floor and wept. It was so painful. But nonetheless, that's how badly he wanted to be a pilot. And he passed all of that, those, entered the Air Force, uh, became an officer, became a pilot, then became a fighter pilot. Uh, he, he was uh, stationed in Germany. Uh, married, lovely German woman. 
He did what all hotshot fighter pilots do when they get stationed in Germany. He went to buy a Porsche. And uh, she worked for the car agency. Her degree was business and languages. She was fluent in English. She was also very beautiful. Took him for a test ride, and he got the car, got the girl, uh, and was married in Germany. And uh, they had a child after they'd been married five years, a little girl born. And when their child was almost two years old, he was killed in this very tragic accident, uh, which was caused, it turned out, after the investigation revealed, because of uh, a mechanic had uh, had the plane for routine maintenance and had replaced two essential parts backwards, causing the plane to be unflyable, and it crashed and exploded. And uh, and then later, the Air Force charged that, pi that uh, mechanic, sadly, with uh, negligent homicide, brought him to trial, and he committed suicide. So it was a tragedy on top of a tragedy. But my little granddaughter was the... Uh, the child that uh, that was his and his wife's, and in fact, she's coming to visit this winter. She's now 21, and uh, she's the great gift that he left. She's very much like him, has his smile, his sense of humor, his determination, and she's a very good student. She's at a university in Germany now. And if I remember correctly, she's also... Um the one who is responsible for teaching you one of your first German words, butterfly. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, I, I, of course, uh, always still do, went to Germany often to visit. And uh, you're, you're mentioning the word butterfly, which is in German, Schmetterling. Uh, and I remember her uh, with a book, a uh, picture book, and pointing out what uh, I knew of as butterfly. And uh, in French, I knew it was papillon. And she said Schmetterling in German. But I remember also thinking for a brief moment that I could understand German and speak it perhaps because this two-year-old pointed out the window. They lived in a very rural area and there were a lot of cows in a pasture across the road. And she said something like, I'm going to forget it exactly now, Kusanschlafen. And I, I understood that she meant the cows are sleeping. And I turned to my daughter-in-law and said, I, I understood what she's saying. And, and that was because she was talking baby talk. I've never learned German, unfortunately. <laughs> well, and it also became an interesting, I think you describe also that when your son was buried, there were... There was a butterfly. There was. Um... That's right. Goodness, I'd almost I'd not forgotten that, but uh, I hadn't thought of it for a long time. Uh, at his funeral in in a lovely old church in the small village where my daughter-in-law had grown up, it was spring. Uh, it was uh, Memorial Day weekend that he was killed, and it was immediately after that that we were there for that funeral. Such a beautiful part of Germany. It was a warm day, and the doors were open, and, and I heard uh, a murmur, or perhaps an awareness that people were experiencing something, and I turned my head to look, and this yellow butterfly was fluttering around the, inside the church. It seems interesting, just knowing what I know of your life. You've written 45 books. You have also lost your son. You also lost your sister at a relatively early age. 
I think somewhere in her 20s, and also you were in your 20s as well. Uh, I was 25, and she was 28 when she died. I, I later wrote a book. My first book for kids dealt with that in a fictional way. And I made, because I was addressing an audience of younger kids, I have the two girls in the book, 13 and 15 years old, but it's about the effect on a family of the death of a young person. Here on Love, Maine Radio, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. Making peace with your finances is easier said than done. We have spent a lifetime being programmed by our beliefs and behaviors interacting with our inherited nature. Making peace with all of that is one of the biggest steps forward you can take. It's a step that can certainly remove a lot of anxiety from your life. Consider this scenario that a lot of us have gone through, or that you may be going through right now. You have money to support yourself and your family, but it's not always there at the right time, or you don't believe that you can access it. That happened to me recently, and also in a big way in 2008. Like you, I have experienced these financial highs and lows. It feels as though you're on some kind of a strange roller coaster, and that you're constantly wrestling with what you want versus what you need. You've got bills and really want to pay them off. You're sort of living in the past so you can move forward. Finding peace in the middle of our culture can make it difficult to make good financial decisions, especially if you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. The first step is to stop and breathe. Look around. Walk around, talk to people. Trade and commerce are going to happen. Money is what makes it easier. Like Shepherd Financial on Facebook, and we will help you evolve with your money peacefully. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com. When I asked you earlier about this, the idea of resilience and sort of bouncing back from things that happen, you said, well, you know, when you get to be my age, this happens. You're going to have tragedies in your life. But I'm not sure everybody has the tragedies that you've had, and I'm not sure everybody bounces back the way that you have either. Well, each each person as they get older, I'm 77 now, uh, has things they've had to recover from, and uh, they may be different. They certainly are different from one person to the next, but I don't feel singled out for particular loss. Uh, I've experienced loss as everybody does. As a matter of fact, it's, it's oddly uh, in a... I started to say subconscious, that's the wrong word, but it's a refrain, a theme throughout the book The Giver, which has become uh, so popular in recent years, of the fact that we can't dismiss, tamp down, ignore, forget uh, 
tragedy. Uh, it, it's part of who we are. I uh, Actually, you mentioned earlier that I'd been born in Hawaii. My father was a very good photographer. And we had, from the time I was a child, uh, terrific home movies that he had made. Not the home movies you see where people are, you know, saying, oh, you know, holding up their hands and saying, oh, don't point the camera at me. My father took very fine home, home movies. And they ended up on big metal reels. I'm using the wrong terminology. But I became aware when he was getting older that those old movies were... Uh, deteriorating. They smelled awful. So I took them to MIT and had them transferred to videotape. Later, I was looking at them in the living room before I sent them to my father uh, and, and in Boston. I had a friend there uh, who had, was a Boston lawyer, but he'd been a naval uh, captain of a nuclear submarine, so he knew Hawaii. He'd been stationed there. And I showed him this film of me as an infant uh, on the beach with my grandmother, who was visiting from Wisconsin, Waikiki, empty beach. Nowadays, of course, it's filled with tourists. But there I am, alone, with my grandmother. And it's quite a lovely bit of film. What I hadn't noticed until this friend pointed out to me is that in the background, on the horizon in that film, moving slowly across the horizon, and he, being a naval officer, could identify it. He said, that's the Arizona. So here's this child playing in this idyllic set of circumstances. I want to say there's a rainbow. There isn't, but you can envision that there might have been. It's so lovely. And yet, crossing in the background, behind her as she laughs and plays, is a ship that carries 1,200 men who will be dead in a few months. The Arizona still lies under the memorial at Pearl Harbor. And it's an example, I think, of how these things throughout our lives, throughout human existence, coexist. Tragedy, ecstasy, all of them. That becomes who we are and what our lives consist of. In the book that I guess we'll call a memoir, not an autobiography, yeah. you mentioned wishing after your son had died that you had been able to have a conversation with your mother about the death of your sister. And that really struck me as something, um, you know, that sort of tragic commonality. As I said, my sister died when I was 25, and she was 28. We didn't live near each other. We had both been married. She had graduated from college, but got married the week after she graduated. She had three children who were two, six, two, four, and six when she became ill. I think three, five, and seven when she died. Uh, so, uh, conversation with my mother. You know, certainly, I, I, my mother lived to be 86, and certainly there were many years after the death of my sister. And yet, for reasons that I, I don't now know and, and never did, I guess, she and I never really sat and talked about that experience. My parents were very reserved people. My father was Norwegian. His parents were Norwegian immigrants. And of course, Norwegians have a, repu a reputation for being taciturn and reserved. And my father certainly was. So it was something that they, they never talked about after her death. Uh, I'm, I'm sad about that. I, w I wish they'd been able to. I wish I'd been able to. Certainly after my son's death, uh, so many friends and my surviving children uh, have been able to to reminisce about him uh, and and to talk about that experience in a way that my parents and I never did. 
it was interesting for me to read A Summer to Die because um, I'm the oldest of 10 children. Oh, my goodness. You were describing yourself as the... Um, the little sister. In The Summer to Die, there are two characters. Yeah, I left the little brother out. My real brother has never quite forgiven me for that. But I, when I started writing the book, I put him in. But a little brother in a book, and at that time, the girls in the book are 13 and 15, he would have been six. He was funny, and it wasn't supposed to be a funny book, but he kept appearing in scenes and being amusing, as little kids are. So I took him out. And I later, I did a second autobiographical book called Autumn Street. I put him in that one. But uh, he doesn't appear in the first. But he w- I was the middle of three children. I can't believe you were the oldest of ten. Well, and I was, this is why I think I was struck was because you're describing the little sister as um, somehow physically imperfect. The, old, the older sister was the beautiful one, the talented one, the cheerleader, the one who was going to go uh, on and do yeah, great things. Yeah. And the younger one was the one that never thought herself um, thought of herself as beautiful until her neighbor, who was a farmer, took a photo of her and mm-hmm. showed her her own beauty. Yeah. But it's, it's something that's, as, the old, as an oldest child, for me to think about how a middle child or a younger child might actually feel about that sibling. That's something that I was i was struck by, and the fact that you're a children's author or a young adult author, and I'm reading this and feeling so struck by it, that says something. Yeah, yeah. And yet, of course, as an adult, I realize, and although because of her early death, we never had a chance to talk about this, but my sister uh, was the beautiful one. She was nominated for Homecoming Queen at Penn State the same year that I was, you know, getting the academic awards. Um, but, but she was the one who thought of me as the smart one. And, and so, uh, you know, there's always somebody who's going to be something more than you are. And it's when you're a child that you, you worry more about that. You learn to let go of that when you become an adult and realize that everybody has something that they're better at than you, and you've got some things that you're better at, and it all equalizes somehow. Well, I would like to believe that what you're saying is true, but I've met many adults who are holding on to things that happened when they were children and still somehow see themselves as not the pretty one, not the intelligent yeah. one, not the whatever. But I do think that books can be a really effective means of showing a child, you know, here's a story that's not your own but could be yours. I think one of the ki- one of the reasons kids, and, and I can speak of myself as a kid who was an avid reader, one of the things that we look for in books as young people is a character that we can identify with. And uh, so often, uh, in, in a book, by me at least, the character will, will have innermost feelings of inadequacy. And, and uh, you know, we all do uh, when we're kids, and some of us continue to when we're adults. But I think it's a way that, that kids reading fiction is a way that kids explore their own feelings. Also, main characters in books, the protagonists in books, are the people who have to make choices. And I think it's a way for young people reading to explore what choices they would make given a set of circumstances. So it's a way in which they rehearse their own lives. And that's an important thing that books do for kids, I think. Uh, it's, I'm an avid reader of fiction, but I read adult fiction, being an adult. And I don't think I any longer do that. I think it's a thing that, that uh, is a particularly uh, a young person's thing, too to uh, place yourself in the place of that character and think, what if? What if this were me? What would I do? 
well, I suspect you have enough of an opportunity to place yourself in a character as part of your writing. So maybe the, the reading piece Well, uh, when writing, because I'm writing for young people and uh, about young people, so the characters in my books are young. And so I'm continually in a position of having to uh, re-enter my childhood self when I'm writing. And that's one of the things I've always been good at doing. I think a lot of people can't. If you ask some people to go back and remember their childhood, they'll remember it in an objective way, as if they're retelling uh, or re relooking at a at a movie playing out. But they're not able to re-enter the emotional life of themselves as a child. I think that's something that I'm able to do, and it's why I'm able to write for for uh, young people. How do you think that that's possible that you're able to do that and others are not? I don't know. I think it's just a different, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm speculating here. I'm speaking from total ignorance, but it's probably some kind of brain chemistry. Uh, I remember once when I was a journalist before I began writing fiction, I was asked to write an article about medical hypnosis. And I spent time with a doctor who used it in his practice. And he hypnotized me. I mean, I remember it perfectly. I wasn't in some weird trance or anything, but he, he regressed me back to age whatever, 20, 13. He, finally, he said, now you're five years old. What are you experiencing? And I said, I'm standing in my grandmother's yard. I can, I'm barefoot. I can feel the pine needles under my feet. I can smell my grandmother's roses. I can hear a dove uh, in the tree above me, the call of a dove. And then later, he said, wasn't that amazing how you could, you know, how you re-entered your five-year-old self? And I said, no, actually, I said, I do that all the time. Uh, you know, tell me any age, and I can put myself there, and I can feel what it was like to be there, to be that person. That's an interesting talent. I mean, it's something that I had never thought about before, this idea that we can, we can intellectualize ourselves back to a certain mm -hmm. age, but mm -hmm. we can't always emotionalize, that's not a word I know, but ourselves back <laughs> but to... But it's a good word. It, 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 it describes it quite well. I can give you another example. Uh, when I was in fourth grade, eight years old, I had skipped second grade, so I was a year younger than my classmates. But eight years old, in fourth grade, I, I wrote a hateful note to another little girl. It's something you do when you're in fourth grade, sadly. And my teacher, Miss Louise Heckman, had me stay after school to discuss this because my note had made Ruthie Fisher cry. And uh, when I think of that moment, I can see Miss Heckman. I can see the dress she was wearing that had a little pattern on it. But I see it blurred. It's because there were tears in my eyes. And, and I'm looking out through those eight-year-old eyes once again. I'm, I'm reliving that experience. It still makes me feel terrible, A, that I did that, B, that I got caught. <laughs> um, but uh, it's, it's just a, a, an odd sensation of having re-entered uh, a younger self. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine, to help me with my own business, and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. I can't imagine that I will ever be an artist. While I appreciate all kinds of art, I know that creating it is just something I'm not able to do. I don't have that kind of talent, and I find myself in awe of the people who do, realizing that all of us have different and unique abilities, and that we can't be good at everything is a tough thing to admit. 
It's a lesson I teach my children, but it's a lesson we all need to remind ourselves of as adults. Recognizing your strengths and talents early are keys to happiness and success. And leveraging those talents that others have is another key to a success. So while I may never have a gallery exhibition of my artwork, I find great joy in knowing that what I and my entire team have is the talent to help businesses run better. We are the leverage an entrepreneur needs to be successful. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com This segment of Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. So that ability to re-enter your younger self and to create um, worlds that become books has to coexist with this ability to be an adult in this other world that we call real. To you were you were a mother, you were a journalist, um, you're now an author who does a lot of public speaking and connecting with people. You, you, you seem able to kind of hold these things. I do. Uh, I, uh, you know, I have a normal adult life, adult friends, adult things that I do. Uh, still working and doing a lot of professional things. Last week I was making a speech in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Uh, next week or week after next I'll be doing the same thing in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, and yet when I'm by myself at work, at home, at my computer, that's when I turn into my other self. Uh, when I'm working on a book and inside the head of a book character, I'm also inside the head of myself at that age. Right now I'm working on a book in which the main character is an 11-year-old girl. So I spend a lot of time being my 11-year-old self. I will say that it's a little more difficult to uh, become a boy. Uh, and some of my books, like The Giver, have a boy protagonist. I'm not sure why I make that decision starting out with a book, but sometimes a boy feels right. And then I have to become that boy. And that requires imagination since I never was a boy. But I did have two sons and I have three grandsons. So they are resources for me. The Giver, I, I watched the movie this weekend and I I thought it was a very good movie. I've always liked Jeff Bridges, and I yeah, thought terrific. that he did a yeah, great job yeah. within um, the movie. I also thought that the book and the movie were different, mm-hmm. as I think usually happens with yeah, very yeah. Um, good books and the movie creation. I'm wondering how how you feel about this 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 thing that you wrote back published in 1993, which is about the time that your granddaughter, I believe, one of your granddaughters was born. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, uh-huh. Like it's an entire lifetime ago. Yeah, yeah. And it's still kind of walking around. It's walking around in classrooms across yeah, the country. exactly. And, and it's also walking into my computer all the time because every day I, get, I still get email from readers. Used to be regular mail. Now anybody can reach me through my website and every day there are 40, 50 emails, most of them about that particular book partly because of the movie, which has generated a a new interest in it. But um, when Jeff came to me many years ago and acquired the rights to the book, he wanted to make a movie starring his father, who was then alive. 
It never came together for a hundred different reasons. Hollywood is a strange place with a lot of requirements. But he continued to, to have that hope, and, and his father eventually died, and then suddenly he realized he was old enough to play the role himself. Uh, the filmmakers were not required in any way by contract to consult with me at all, and they could have gone and done their own thing, and I would have come to the movie theater and not known what I was going to see. But they were very courteous, I, I, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but very gracious in including me in the process. Uh, sometimes more than I wanted to be included. I remember two summers ago getting a, an email from the director, Philip Noyce, saying he wanted to get together with me. I was at my summer home in Bridgeton. He, of course, was in Los Angeles. And I remember writing back and saying, well, okay, I could do that. Uh, happy to talk to you. Uh, here's what you need to do. You'll, you'll need to fly to Portland, Maine. You won't be able to get a direct flight. You'll have to change in Chicago or something. I will meet your flight in Portland, and then I will drive you 35 miles to my house. It's a big house. You'll have lots of privacy, but we can spend a couple days. To well, immediately I got an email saying, no, uh, I want you to come here. And uh, it was disruptive to my summer. I, uh, that summer and then this immediate past summer, it just took all my time. Uh, but in the meantime, they had also wanted me to go to South Africa for the filming. And then this past summer, I was in San Diego, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, New York. And uh, I, I didn't really want to be that involved. But at the same time, I was gratified that they valued my opinion. When they were filming, outside of the four days I spent in South Africa watching, the director emailed me almost every day, sometimes several times a day, just seeking my advice on very small things. Sometimes he took my advice, sometimes he ignored my advice. There were, as you pointed out, changes made. I knew that from the get-go, that there would have to be. It's an introspective book, there's not a lot of action. A movie is a visual medium. Uh, they had to add action, and they did. One thing they did that I was at first troubled by, but later came to terms with, is the fact that they made the kids in the movie older than in the book. In the book, they're 12, the boy, the main character, and his two best friends. In the movie, they're older, 17 perhaps. Uh, and that was done for purely pragmatic reasons. Their market research told them that teenagers, a large part of the movie audience, won't go to a movie about 12-year-olds. Uh, and so they didn't want to lose that segment of the audience, and that made sense. And another reason was that if you work with kids in a movie, they're limited by law to how many hours a day they can work. And if they had 12-year-olds as the actors, it would have doubled the time of the filming, cost a lot more. At any rate, when I saw the kids, I met the kids, then I watched some of the scenes being filmed, and I realized right away it was going to be okay because of the way the kids in the movie and in the book are brought up. They are completely naive and unsophisticated so that they're like 12-year-olds. And right away, watching them, I don't know if you had this experience, but I could see that it was okay that they were a little older. I just asked them, please, not to turn it into a teenage romance. They assured me they would not. Uh, but because they're older, because they're teenagers, and because the boy has this friend who's this gorgeous 16-year-old girl, of course he's going to have romantic feelings for her once he begins to acquire feelings. And so that had to become a part of it. I think it wasn't uh, overdone. They used some restraint. Well, I, as I said, I did enjoy 
the movie. I also enjoyed the book, and I just I I had gone back and reread the book because I have a 13 year old, so I had gone back and and read the series sort of as she was yeah, as she yeah. was reading it. And I was just I I was uh, struck by the fact that both were very um, both are very compelling in in kind of different different ways. Yeah, and and people who want a movie to be exactly the same as a book are are always going to be disappointed. A movie's a different medium, and uh, it can't be the same thing. The only movie that I recall where a book and a movie seemed at least, I'd have to go back and reread and rewatch to ascertain this for sure, but To Kill a Mockingbird, I think, is the one that felt so much exactly like the book. Uh, but even so, I think there were some changes made in that as well. You described this ability that you have to go back into a younger self and really feel that younger self. But for you, it also seems that you have a strong visual sense. I know that photography has been an interest of yours. In fact, in A Summer to Die, your first book, you actually described um, Yeah, I inserted my own self. Yeah, that was not true of me at 13, but I studied photography in graduate school. And I worked as a photographer for a while. The picture of the old man on the cover of The Giver, that was a photograph that I did. The picture of the girl on the cover of Number of the Stars is also a photograph by me. Um, oh, that one, Gathering Blue, I also did that photograph. But visual, yes. Uh, when I'm writing, I can always see everything that I'm writing about. Every scene that I depict in words, I'm also seeing in my head. And yet the interesting thing is, and I think the wonderful thing is, that every reader brings their own memories and experience and imagination to a book. So what they see is not what I see. So if I write a book and a million people read it, it's a million different books because each one brings their own individual perceptions to it. Uh, but nonetheless, when I'm writing it, I'm seeing it exactly. I'm, I, I could, If I were a painter, I would be able to paint each scene as I write it. How does having um, a place in Maine impact your your writing. Um, I'm thinking about for Art Collector Maine, we interviewed uh, a number of artists, and I had the chance to be part of this. And one of them actually, I think, lives in Bridgeton. So she described this very strong connection with nature. And she liked being outside a lot. And she liked actually the sort of kinesthetic experience of being in nature as opposed to seeing it from afar. Hmm. Has this had any impact on your writing? Well, I've done over the years, my writing has taken place in different places. I've, I've lived in Boston, actually in Cambridge, Massachusetts for many years. Very urban, though I lived in a residential residential part of Cambridge, very urban community. But for many years I've also had a summer home in Maine. And that I think is where I most feel comfortable writing. Uh, I, I've now sold the house in Cambridge and I've moved full time to Maine, so I'm in Portland. But I also still have the old farm in Bridgeton. And when I'm there, uh, one thing that's important is that I'm, I'm relatively isolated. It's very quiet there. I have a beautiful landscape that I look out on. I'm on a hilltop. I look down to Long Lake, beyond a meadow. Sometimes there's a deer walking through the meadow. I mean, you could make it up, and, and it would be just like that. Uh, and I think that, that sense of being solitary and quiet is important to me when I'm, when I'm writing. And yet, you know, I did it in an office in, in, uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, looking out at traffic as well. So part of it is just a function of the imagination. 
You began publishing books when you were 40, which was the same time that you got divorced. You recreated yourself from the person you know that you were from 1 to 19 or 0 yes. to 19, or the many people that you were, yeah, and then yeah, 19 yeah. to 40, and yeah, then 40. I was a wife and a mother. Uh, and and uh, and then the time for being that passed, and uh, my kids were grown, and I embarked on a career. I've been very fortunate with it that I chose the thing that I was best at and that I love most. And so, I think the luckiest people are the ones who who make a living doing what they love, so that you can get up every morning excited about what you're going to do that day. And that's what my life has has been like. Um, I don't know that it's a form of recreating myself, really, because that person who went at age 17 to Brown to study writing had a special scholarship for a writing program that Brown had at that time. That's the same person I still am. I just took some paths along the way and and uh, leaped over some obstacles and, and uh, indulged some other things that were also, I've always loved kids, I always wanted kids, so I, I've never regretted having four children. It was probably kind of foolish to have them at such a young age, but if I hadn't, then my life would have taken a very different turn. If I had graduated from college, for example, I wouldn't have been mature enough to be a writer successfully. I probably would have entered the world of publishing, since that was my interest. I would have perhaps become an editor, and maybe I would have been good at it. But it would have been a different life from the life that's turned out. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. I did enjoy reading in something that was out there because there's a lot of information out there about you. I don't. It's it's a good thing. I think. I hope most of it is true. I, I think. Well, <laughs> and this said that your divorce was largely due to the fact that you really had just grown apart in very significant ways. And I think that that, for people who are, and maybe this is true, maybe it's not true, but I think that for people who go through something as difficult as a divorce, to have that be the main reason is is often the case. Oh, yeah, I think particularly people who married young uh, and weren't grown up yet. Uh, and I was 19 when I married, had just turned 19, and my husband was 21. We were kids, and and then we turned into adults, but we were adults who probably would not have married each other had we met as adults. So uh, 
nonetheless, we were married for 20 years and had four children. Uh, and, and so I, I don't regret that. Uh, it's just the way things were. There was also a funny scene that I'm recalling now that I actually laughed out loud. I was sitting on the plane reading this about um, the man that would eventually become um, the next significant man in your life. Uh-huh. About, um, I believe he was your insurance. <laughs> um, when I moved to Boston, three years after I was divorced, I continued to live in Maine, and then I moved to Boston. I could have lived anywhere because I have a portable profession. But um, I've forgotten where my kids were at that time, but, but probably perhaps still in New England, except the one who ended up in Germany. But at any rate, I moved to Boston, drove my little car to Boston to a, an apartment that I'd rented by reading a Boston newspaper, and, uh, and discovered I had no place to park because I didn't have a residence sticker. So I embarked on this quest to be able to have a parking place in Boston. It required my registering my car in Massachusetts, which I tried to do, and they said, no, no, you must have Massachusetts insurance. So I then, I'm, I'm spending two days walking around Boston on this quest. Uh, so I went to an insurance agent, uh, agency to buy Massachusetts insurance, which I did from a secretary then walked back to the registry, registered my car. any rate, uh, and then a couple days later, I got a phone call from the head of the insurance agency saying it's our policy to take new clients out for coffee. Are you free after dinner this evening? And uh, that turned out to be the man with whom a year later uh, I moved in. We bought a condo together. And he died three years ago, but we'd been together for 32 years. But in the interim, the first time he called you, you said you didn't, weren't really sure you actually <laughs> wanted to be with him. And in fact, you were just worried he might take your insurance away or something. And that was one Well, of the- I don't remember, but it seemed odd. And actually, he later confessed. It was not, of course, their policy to take new clients out for dinner or coffee, it was. Uh, but my papers had crossed his desk, and he recognized my name because he played tennis with a friend who had said to him, I know this woman who's just moved to Boston. You ought to call and ask her out. And he had said sure and taken my number and ignored it. And then when my insurance papers crossed his desk, he recalled that that name was familiar, and that's when he called me. So it was an odd uh, odd way of meeting. Uh, circumstances just fell into the right place. Turned out he, he lived not far from me in, in uh, Back Bay. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was happenstance. But you didn't initially think that you wanted to connect with him. You were you were kind of tired of dating, oh, and you well, said, "Well, you I'm know, looking for a guy well, with you a know, beard." When you're when you're single at, at age forty, dating is not fun. And I had met some weird people, uh, including one who, uh, in a coffee shop, had taken my uh, uh, the bill. Uh, he had sat down next to me in a coffee shop. He was a very attractive man. We got to talking, and uh, he invited me out for dinner or something. And I. I felt as though this wasn't, uh, I don't know, it just seemed kind of odd, and so I said no. And he picked up my bill uh, for my 37-cent cup of coffee, that's how long ago this was, and balled it up in his hand and threw it at me. And he said, I could buy and sell you. And then he stormed out of the coffee shop, and I thought, my God, what if I'd invited him to my apartment for dinner? So at any rate, I'd had enough strange experiences like that that I was not uh, 
rushing to meet any new men. And, and so I, I said to Martin kind of jokingly uh, that, that I really liked men with beards. And actually, that's true. If I walk into a room still and there are 100 people in the room and three of them have beards, I think that those are the most intelligent people in the room. I mean, it's stupid, but that's just a... <laughs> That's just a thing I think. And so when I said that to him, he started growing a beard, and he had a beard for the 32 years that uh, we were together. So as I'm talking to you, it's, um, it's clear that you, you enjoy the work that you're doing, that, that you are currently doing. I know? love my life. I love my work. I wake up every morning uh, with a sense of exhilaration and anticipation that uh, something new is going to happen today in my mind, in my computer, in my life. Uh, it's it's uh, a wonderful way to exist. And you also, um, you, you mentioned how old you are. You have quite a few years ahead of you. Do you have any sense for anything that has sort of left unlived or left undone that you would like oh, to do? Oh, I've always had in my mind a list of things I'd like to do. And I've, I've begun to cross some of them off because of my age, the realization that I'm probably not going to do that. And it's with some regret. For example, I've always wanted to design a house, build a house. Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm 77. That's not going to happen. I've also... Uh, long thought that I would like to go live in another country, rent an apartment in Paris or something. Uh, and I've done that for a week or two here and there, but I, I realize now I'm, I'm not going to do that, partly because I've made another decision, which is kind of foolhardy at my age, but I got a puppy a few years ago, and uh, you can't take a puppy to live in France. And so, you know, you trade off. You, you do some things and let go of others. Uh, however, I do still have things on my list that, that I still want to do. Uh, in recent years, I've, I've taken some adventurous trips. Uh, I went to Easter Island uh, a few years ago, and then Guatemala, and then Patagonia. And, uh, and so uh, I still have travel left in me, I think. That's always been important to me. Martin and I traveled a lot. And what are you reading these days? You said you like fiction. Tell me some of your favorite works of fiction. I just read, uh, I like all kinds of fiction. I, I like a lot of nonfiction, too, but I like British mysteries. And I just picked up a book the other evening, about 8 o'clock, thinking I'll read for a little bit. And it was called The Paying Guests. I can't remember the author's name, but it is a British mystery. And uh, 2 in the morning, I was still uh, reading that book because I could not put it down. And I mentioned that to a friend in San Francisco in an email. And I just got an email from her yesterday saying, thanks a lot. I was up till 2 in the morning reading The Paying Guests. So that's my current recommendation. Lois, I really appreciate your coming in and um, talking with us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me. We've been speaking with Lois Lowry, who is a children's book author who lives in Maine. Um, tell me how people can learn more if they don't already know about you, which I suspect that they do if they're listening, but how can they learn more about you and your work? And Well, I have a website, www.loislowryoneword.com, and uh, there's a lot of stuff on there. And since I've put that stuff on there, it's all true. If you go to Expedia, you might find stuff that is uh, a little um, more fictitious that other people have put there. But you just Google me, you'll find out whatever you need to know. 
Well, thank you very much for all the um, books that you've written and all the places that you've been and the people that you've uh, been in touch with and all the children whose lives you've touched and adults whose lives you've touched. Oh, thank you. You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 171, The Giver. Today's guest was author Lois Lowry. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running travel food and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed The Giver Show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belisle is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Susan Grisanti, Kevin Thomas, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Content producer is Kelly Clinton, and our online producer is Ezra Wolfinger. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love, Maine Radio Facebook page or go to www.lovemainradio.com for details.